This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Eleanor Cummins. And I'm Sarah Chodosh. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by all teasing a fact that we picked up while reporting, editing, reading some other great science journalism, or just kind of clicking around on the internet. And we decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Uh, Once we've all had the chance to tell our science stories, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. And if you disagree with our vote, we would absolutely love to hear about it on Twitter at weirdest underscore thing. Sarah, why don't you give us your pitch? Um, First of all, mine's not a weird fact. I'm already violating the entire premise of our (laughs) podcast. Um, Mine is a heartwarming fact. I just thought maybe... Boo. (laughs) I know. I'm so sorry. Just amidst the the death and destruction, I'm going to bring you just a real nice fact, Um, which is that there's a family in South Carolina that's been recording the weather every day since 1893 on behalf of the federal government. I will point out that last week we had a heartwarming fact about a really good dog that ended up uh, being the winner because it turned into a story about a taxidermied human. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Anything no is possible. There's no taxidermied humans or corpses in this tale, unfortunately, Yet. but there will be a lot of information about the weather. <laughs> so brace yourselves for all my interesting facts. <laughs> and Eleanor, what's, what's your fact today? There was a king in England who had this thing called the king's drops that uh, were part skull, human skull, and part alcohol. I love that you had to specify human skull. Who know There are so many well, skulls on this earth. You know, if it was made of like ocelot skull, that wouldn't be as weird. It'd be metal. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, <laughs> ocelot skull is pretty standard. That would be boring. Shut, this is the shut, weirdest shut. thing I learned this week. Great. Uh, so my fact is about nuns, the origin of the cosmos, and the female orgasm. Mm. Wow. Well, you just jumped in there and won it there, so I think we got to go with that. (laughs) Great. I came across this story uh, in kind of a roundabout way. Uh, My sister is an opera singer, and she just commissioned this new piece of music. I will have the uh, actual piece uh, on popsci.com. You should check it out. This is not nepotism. It's actually extremely good. I can mm. confirm it. It is excellent. Yeah. Correct. And uh, it was based on a letter from Caroline Herschel, uh, an astronomer, to her sister in the 1800s. And for a long time, Caroline was known as 
just the sister of William Herschel, a very famous astronomer. And she kind of like did his housekeeping and like kept his books and was known as kind of like the helper. And uh, now we recognize that Caroline Herschel was a fantastic astronomer in her own right, discovered a lot of comets, uh, did a lot of the actual uh, mathematic work that we gave her brother credit for for a long time. And the reason this letter is so great is that she is writing to her sister about how she's thinking about all of these amazing women who science has forgotten. And it's really heartwarming because she was one of those women as well. One of the uh, subjects of her her letter is Hildegard uh, of Bingen. And uh, she was born in 1098 in Germany. She was a nun. And in the letter, Caroline talks about how uh, Hildegard came up with the idea of heliocentrism, meaning that everything revolves around the sun 300 years before Copernicus did. So Hildegard, for people who don't know, real boss lady, uh, for sure. She was the 10th and last child of uh, this well-to-do family in Germany. Of course, with that many children, lots of them joined the church. She went off at the age of eight to um, learn under a woman named uh, Judda. It was kind of a unique spot at the time because it was like a co-ed monastery. I mean, they did not live together. Wild. <laughs> right. Excellent. Real crazy. It was. Not, they didn't actually share living space, but it was like a joint uh, monastery with nuns on one side and men on the other. And the reason this was so important to Hildegard's story is that it meant she had access to academic texts that were meant for uh, male clergy. All of the science and math that was happening that was exciting was going on in the Middle East. And it was just around Hildegard's lifetime that people in Western Europe were like, oh, what up, science? (laughs) And started, um, very luckily for Western Europe, the uh, scholars of the Muslim world had translated the texts of the ancient Greeks into Arabic, which meant that then... Uh, Western Europe could find them and translate them again and actually read them. Otherwise, they would have been lost forever. So she was in this very unique spot uh, for anyone of the time, but especially for a woman, to actually be reading all of this exciting mathematic work that had been, as far as we know, kind of lost to Western Europe for a long time. And she was uh, kind of in charge of uh, medical practice and botany for the monastery, which makes sense because most of the, all of the medicine was plant-based really. So if you wanted to practice medicine, you also needed to know what plants helped people and which ones would kill them. That was how by middle age, uh, she had become a real scholar. She was recording all of this botanical knowledge and also starting to just kind of expound on all sorts of things. Hildegard had Uh, which she thought were visions, which are now pretty widely accepted, at least outside of religious contexts, as having been migraines. Uh, She talks about having auras and having some kind of like synesthesia-esque, like cross of senses and just being like overwhelmed by light and, and sound and having these very ecstatic visions. And they really intermingled with the scientific things that she wrote in a way that makes it really difficult to know how much she actually knew. I was able to track down the text that people are referring to when they say that she not only predicted heliocentrism, but uh, figured out universal gravitation before Newton had wow. suggested gravity. When you're reading it with uh, 21st century uh, cosmological hindsight, 
everything she's saying could technically be someone describing a heliocentric solar system uh, and could be someone describing the effects of gravity, but it, it's also so vague, it's really hard to say <laughs> that, that that's what it was. Yeah, we could just be sort of putting our own... We, all, we want Hildegard right. to have thought of these things. But she does seem to suggest that she thinks the planets are orbiting the sun, so that's cool, because not everybody thought that at the time. It was much simpler to just be like, no, everything revolves around us. The, another thing that people often like to uh, attribute to her is early thinking about how the seasons worked, because she wrote something about how, like, if it is hot in one part of the Earth, it must be cold on the other side as everything must be in equilibrium. You know, maybe she was just doing some really smart math about like the angle of the sun or maybe she was just like, all things must have balance, makes sense to me. Um, either way, it, it's clear that she was a really smart lady who did a lot of really impressive thinking. I would love to know like where she was getting her ideas from and how much of it was, you know, actual mathematic extrapolation and how much just happens to sound a little bit like something that may have been based on observation. So hard to know in retrospect how to what degree you know women like Hildegard were just trying to fly under the radar. Um, I read this really interesting thing on Twitter the other day um, from this historian who was talking about the origin of the word spinster. Hmm. Do you guys know anything about this? No. So apparently spinsters, like obviously spinster, it was originally a job in which you spun um, wool into threads and yarn. Um, and at the time, if you could, if you were a good spinster, you could earn quite a bit of money. Um, so it was one of the very few ways back then that as a woman you could be financially independent. And so now we use spinster as this derogatory, you know, woman who just, doesn't want to get married and she's all alone and cranky and in fact uh, spinsters were just secretly living their own lives <laughs> and not having to marry men out of obligation so spinsters should be we should revere spinsters proud proud spinster absolutely let me get to the female orgasm so finally finally and so Hildegard wrote this description which I will put in our uh, write up on popsci.com that is very clearly about a female orgasm. She's talking about, and it's, she's talking about uh, when a woman is making love with a man and there's a sense of heat in her brain, which brings with it sensual delight. Uh, there's talk of contractions. And she talks about how it's important that these contractions occur in order for pregnancy to be successful. So, okay. <laughs> Sarah has questions. I have so many questions. First of all, the heat in the brain. Was she interviewing women right after they had sex? or Like I've, Alfred Kinsey. Yeah. And the contractions. I mean, I've, I've read about the sex research that went on very recently. And you, ha you have to get pretty close, I think, <laughs> to be observing stuff like that. Or you have to be having your own orgasm. Right. So, totally unclear how Hildegard knew so much about orgasm. Uh, it's possible that... There, she was doing some kind of midwifery for people outside the monastery. She probably treated people outside the monastery. Clearly, Hildegard was a really curious lady. So I can I can imagine her being like, "Here's a thing I will never experience because I am married to the Lord, and so I need to figure it out so that I know its medical implications." Or maybe Hildegard was having a lot of sex. We just don't know. We just we just don't know. 
maybe she was just masturbating and she was just sort of imagining that that was a thing that happened a lot during sex. And little did she know, like in 1066 or whatever, <laughs> probably not. not that many women were having just that, random orgasms during sex. That could also explain a lot is if she was just working based on the info the intel within the female monastery and yeah. extrapolating. They were all having great <laughs> orgasms alone. Right. And just like, well, I get this must happen also during sex. <laughs> and um, it's important to not overhype what Hildegard was aware of. You know, it was still all couched in the uh, level of medical understanding of the day. For example, she also thought that semen was the blood of man poisoned after his fall from grace in the Garden of Eden and that it was a woman's body, quote, warming it possibly through orgasm, that increased conception likelihood. She also wrote the strength of semen determined the sex of the child, while the amount of love and passion determined its disposition. And the worst case, where the seed is weak and parents feel no love, leads to a bitter daughter. Wow. Getting into some real problematic areas there, Hildegard. Right. Yeah, no, Hildegard, Hildegard was a problematic fave, for sure. But then, again, you know, was she just telling the dudes what they wanted to hear? I wish we could know. I just realized that I now finally have an answer to that stupid question about what person, living or dead, would you like want to invite to dinner? I yes. never have an answer, but now it's Hildegard because I would want to invite her to dinner, like just one on one, me and Hilda, <laughs> and just sit down and be like, "So, what do you think? Tell me, <laughs> tell me the real deal here. Who's the real Hildegard? Yeah, I mean, maybe it will all turn out to be garbage, but at least I'll know. Yeah, thinking about Hildegard and how intriguing what we know about her is but how little we know and how we can't really say how much of what she wrote just happened to line up with knowledge that we have today it drives me a little crazy that it can all be written off as like oh you know she was just writing this poetry because she loved all of God's creation and it just happened to line up with X, Y, and Z. Like, what if she was actually really, really trying to figure out physical explanations for things? And what if she had figured some of them out? So again, obviously, the truth is impossible to decipher, probably somewhere in the murky middle of things. Uh, but I do wish that we were able to say one way or another, you know, whether Hildegard was just writing uh sad poems in her journal or was making some of the like most groundbreaking scientific extrapolations of her time. On that note, let's uh, take a quick break. Do you wear your pride on your sleeve? Popular Science is partnering with Out in STEM to make limited edition t-shirts with a rainbow popside logo. 100% of the profits go to Out in STEM, a nonprofit that empowers the LGBTQ community in science, tech, engineering, and math fields. Scoop one up before they're gone and share on social with the hashtag SciPride. That's SCI Pride. And we're back and ready for the next weird fact. Sarah, how about you to tell us about the weather? Yeah, uh, over to Sarah with the weather. My fact uh, came about because I was uh, trying to find tornado data for an unrelated but still job-related reason. Um, <laughs> he wasn't, wasn't doing personal <laughs> tornado research during work time. I would never do that. I was strictly that is for work. time theft. <laughs> strictly for work purposes. Um, there's this 
just absolutely fabulous blog called Beyond the Data, um, run by a bunch of climatologists at NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And basically it's just, it's people whose job it is to like keep track of our national climatological data. And they run a blog when they just sort of find interesting things. And as far as I can tell, they're just blogging for themselves just because it's interesting. And they're, they're always totally fascinating. This fact also involves Thomas Jefferson, as clearly all of my facts have to do with Thomas Jefferson. Um, in uh, in the 1640s um, are the earliest like actual systematic weather observations that were taken in America by John Campanius Holm along the Delaware River. It seems like he was maybe just the only one doing it kind of for a century. And then Thomas Jefferson came along um, and bought, bought his first thermometer while he was writing the Declaration of Independence and then bought his first barometer <laughs> just after they signed it. So I guess he just had other things on his mind. <laughs> just a lot of spare time to go around buying new instruments. Um, and he kept like an unbroken record of the daily weather until 1816 uh, when he turned it over to a volunteer network that he got going in Virginia. George Washington also kept track of the weather every single day until the day before he died. But of course, back then, you could not, you know, you could gather weather from, from where you were, and then later, if you had enough people, you could gather that information, you could understand, like, s- sort of general patterns. But you couldn't do anything close to forecasting other than, you know, l- looking at the clouds and trying to predict sort of general movements like that. For a while, it was it seems like it was mostly founding fathers keeping track of the weather for some reason um, until eventually the Surgeon General of the Army um, shortly after the Civil War directed his surgeons to record the weather and the climate as well as like the diseases that they were diagnosing at the time because he wanted to see whether there was a correlation between what the weather was Mm -hmm. like and whether people whether his soldiers got sick more often or got certain diseases so yeah like the weather our our modern weathering system basically started uh, with the military um, and then a guy named Joseph Henry, who was uh, secretary of the Smithsonian, established a network of 150 volunteers in 1849 who mailed in their reports of the daily wind and temperature and clouds and precipitation. Um, and then because it, because I guess it took him this long to compile it, he did not actually publish that data until 1861. So it's 12 years later. Um, I guess mailing it all took quite a while. Um, But the weather network really took off with the invention of the telegraph because with the telegraph you could get information Mm. quickly enough over a large enough area. You could say like if there was a storm system over this part of the country yesterday, we can predict that it's going to move in this general pattern over the next couple of days. Um, So he had this whole system going. in the mid-1850s, uh, it got all the way out to, like, New Orleans, and he would share his dispatches with the Washington Evening Star, which is a, was a newspaper, and they would publish the daily weather for nearly 20 cities back in 1857 mm. and then just, like, slowly expand until they were doing it with hundreds and hundreds of cities. It wasn't until 1870 that it was actually someone's job other than just Joseph Henry's pet project um, because basically so like sailors realized that they really could benefit from warnings about incoming storms and so congress authorized the army's signal service to take over storm warnings um and then extended it later two years uh, in 1872 to the rest of the u.s because storms don't just happen over the ocean um and then in 1890 congress established the weather bureau they 
actually, I think, calculated that if you had a volunteer recording the weather every 25 miles, you could accurately measure things like average rainfall over an area with like an acceptable amount of error. Um, and then that became what is now like the National Weather Service. That was the beginning. Um, but I think it's really interesting because so much of the reason any of this actually worked was just because volunteers agreed mm. to take in all this data, especially at a time when that was not easy. Even today, I would probably not volunteer to just take <laughs> a bunch of weather data and be saving it constantly in a file. And it's pretty easy for us now. I mean, if you had to write it down every single day and make sure it was accurate and then mail it in and then other people had to compile the data by hand, like it was a really laborious process. And it was only because these people just wanted to volunteer. Like in 1895, there were 2,000 people in the Cooperative Observer Program or like the COOP program. Do you know if like, so were we the first country to set about doing this like systematically? I know that there were, there were definitely a lot of people interested in the weather like in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, but I think because the states are so big, mm. we had this massive network. I mean, even within the UK, it's not a massive area of land in comparison to like the entire like yeah imagine it, in the UK you can just all watch the same cloud pass yeah, over rain tomorrow rain um, but it, like it, you know in 1895 they had weather stations in non-states right mm. just because it was a useful thing to do and today there are more than 11,000 people who just want to record the weather for the good of the nation. See, there's there's something like so like adorably American. I feel like about that, you know, just about passion for the weather. Like I feel like you know everyone makes fun of it. It's like, oh yeah, like you're talking about the weather again. But like, come on, the so cool. The weather. Sorry, interesting. I keep making fun of you for talking about the weather. Yeah, thank you. That means a lot to me. I think weather is really interesting and one of the most complicated things we do like we do not have an accurate appreciation for how hard it is to predict the weather mm. people are always angry at their local meteorologists <laughs> for getting the weather wrong i'm angry when they get the snow wrong personally but we shouldn't because it is so so hard like we literally have supercomputers trying to work on better <laughs> predicting weather because there's so much randomness and i think it's beautiful i mean these people like because so many volunteers were recording the weather in the 1800s we have this massive climatological record and it is still part of how we go back and look at how much global warming has affected uh, our world. Right. Um, and it was all the way up until the, the 90s that they were just like recording it on paper and they would mail it at the end of each month to their local weather forecast office. Um, and so that is how a family in South Carolina, they, they pass it down from a father to a daughter to a niece and the niece is still Recording the weather so every day in South Carolina. Oh Eleanor is overcome. I think <laughs> it's that's wonderful. I think it's so lovely. It is really lovely. So were there any like like I mean obviously there were no monetary rewards. That's the definition of volunteering. But <laughs> some, I should say uh, some of them get paid some very small amount. Okay. But it's like I think a third of them maybe. Interesting. Um, so I guess my question was like, were you getting feedback, you know, or was it just that it was cool to see that like your local paper actually had some information to offer about what was coming? That's a really good question. There don't seem to be, there, there's not a lot of information from that end, unfortunately, because 
these were people who seemed to have volunteered out of the goodness of their heart, and right. they weren't the people writing history. They it just was loved the science. Yeah, I mean, I have to assume that that was the reason. I don't even know how you would go about enrolling people. Like you just yeah. send out a message and say, "Hey, is anyone in town?" Like it interested seems, in the weather. Yeah, it seems like doubly generous that you would spend your time this way, but also that like it was for some sort of far off goal. You know, like I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of delayed gratification that now we're like, wow, thanks so much. But like, what were you know what were they actually getting out of it? Nothing. They were just great. Even now, I, I mean, if you're one of the people who mans one of the eleven thousand stations, you're sending in your data all the time. But it's not like you get to see the process by which your information turns into mm. a forecast or turns into an understanding of our climate. Although actually there was one story recently um, about the one of the coops, I think it was a coop, um, all the way up in what used to be Barrow, Alaska mm-hmm. and got renamed to its original name, which I'm sure I'm going to butcher, but it's something like Utkavik. Utkavik? I'm saying that wrong and I'm sorry about that. Um, But it's near Point Barrow, which is the northernmost point in America. And it is warming so fast that recently um, the data accidentally got thrown out by an algorithm that is actually designed to detect when a sensor has gone awry and something something is wrong. Um, So basically like the... National Centers for Environmental Information have this very complicated algorithm that basically is like compares every station to nearby stations Mm -hmm. and compares whether that station is sort of out of whack. So if you have, you know, three surrounding stations that are measuring that it's 30 degrees and one station is measuring that it's 45 degrees, probably that one something is wrong with that one station. But not in Point Barrow. But not in Point Barrow um, because, like, October in the 21st century in Point Barrow is 7.8 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than it was in the late 20th century, which is... Very troubling. (laughs) Very troubling because it's it's warming faster um, that far north than it is anywhere else. Um, And, yeah, it is warming so fast that their algorithm was like, nah. This can't be right. It's absolutely wild. There was also, I happen to know about the COOP program because I wrote about one of the stations for um, our weather issue last year because one of the COOP stations in Loma, Montana was the site of the record for the biggest 24-hour temperature change ever. Oh my gosh, I remember this. It was wild. It was a 103-degree change (laughs) from negative 54, which... It's amazing that it was negative 54 to begin with. Negative 54 degrees Fahrenheit to 49 between January 14th and 15th, 1972. I love that neither of those temperatures is, like, pleasant. No. I mean, I'm, I'm 49 comparatively is great, but it's not like it went from being, I don't know. I guess it. it I would, it would be, there would be something really whimsical about it going from negative 20 to, like, Balmy, so, yeah, yeah, balmy. But it's just like, well, now degrees. it's chilly. Yeah, but check my math. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love that it just went from being like ungodly cold to being chilly. Yeah, a chilly evening. Um, I think it's wild because th- that was from a, a Chinook wind, which is like a winds that come down um, from over mountains. Um, it's really common in that part of my, Montana that air comes down a mountain and as the atmospheric pressure increases the 
air temperature increases and if the wind is moving fast enough, it happens really quickly and it basically heats up all this air and the wind comes rushing down the mountain and it comes, it's swept into this town and that's how you get 103 degree temperature change. Did it go back to very, very low? I think not instantaneous, like not nearly as quickly, but yeah, because the wind is just a temporary thing, but there's just like this massive cold air block sitting over Montana. Chinook winds sometimes uh, break windows in towns Damn. where it happens because That's the rude. temperature because the temperature change happens so quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, because our glass is, is only designed to, it's not 130 I'm degrees is beyond the what they've designed it to withstand, um, which is pretty wild. So yeah, that was my heartwarming little segment here. Love I it. just think it's citizen science at its best because mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of citizen science that is obviously like very worthwhile today but a lot of it is gamified mm-hmm. because more people will do it obviously like that's you know that protein folding game I would not have done that if it were not a game <laughs> um, and it's not just like oh take a picture of birds while you're out like it's not a thing you do in your spare time it is like you're committing to being the people who run that station every day and literally like the national climatological record depends on you and what you write down goes into an official permanent collection well on that note we're going to take a quick break it's been scientifically proven that monday is the worst day of the week or at least it used to be because now that's when you can expect new episodes of pop size other podcasts last week in tech every week we recap the big technology stories that you may have missed you could subscribe to us on itunes stitcher pocket casts or soundcloud now back to the weirdest thing i learned this week And we're back with our last weird fact from Eleanor. Right. So as you may remember, my tease was about uh, King Charles II of England and about these uh, king's drops that he uh, used to, you know, improve his health. And it just happened to be made of skulls that were pulverized <laughs> and mixed with alcohol, which I'm sure the alcohol did wonders for his for his mood. But um, <laughs> not sure about those skulls. So. I wanted to talk a little bit today just about medical cannibalism. Um, Yeah, which has a really long history, starting in like the Middle Ages. um, And and I want to make this very clear, into the Victorian era, (laughs) all right? People ate other humans (laughs) for their health. (laughs) So I'm just, just getting that out there. Um, that that is what medical cannibalism is. Just to be clear, yeah, that is medical cannibalism. Because Eleanor has what been, it says on the tin. <laughs> Eleanor has been saying this phrase to me all week, telling me just like teasing what the fact would be, and every single time I just have this like, but what is medical cannibalism again? <laughs> what? Yeah, it's it's uh it's gnarly. Basically, there's a very long history um, of of this practice, and it sort of peaked in the Renaissance, and then, as I said, continued into the Victorian era. But basically, one of the sort of principles is of this idea of like sympathetic magic, and so if you were able to take, um, preferably a recently dead um, person's body, and like you consumed part of the the body part that was ailing you, that you could become better. So like if you had really bad headaches. Try us, try some skull, um, or so an alarming amount of medicine was just like like cures, like absolutely, yeah. That's the whole premise here. Um, blood jam was good, uh, just in general, preferably from <laughs> preferably <laughs> from toast. a criminal like who was killed by the state. Um, a lot of people <laughs> really loved uh, the the leftovers of of public hangings, um, which you know maybe was just a. Uh, 
about a supply demand kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and I just, I, you know, was just going through this and found it really fascinating. Like one of the questions that I feel like I had was why did it sort of continue for so long? Like I feel like we all, it's like a cultural mem. I'm just kidding. It's a cultural meme, um, <laughs> you know, to make fun of people in like the middle ages because they knew nothing and everything they said was silly. But the Victorian era was like five minutes ago, and yeah. yet everyone was just like, give me a piece of that mummy. We'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> give me a piece of that publicly executioned person. Um, and I, I was sort of like, what was going on? So there's actually a lot of scholarship about like why um, the like Renaissance and into the Victorian era was so weird. <laughs> and um, people are essentially arguing, these experts who have spent a lot of time in the, you know, in the primary literature from that era, um, that it was such a confusing time given how science was upending so many old sort of mm. like religious beliefs and like these very clearly laid out ways of looking at the world that everyone subscribed to that like then then sort of, you know, rise of the natural world and these other explanations got really easily blurred with the supernatural. Wow. And so people were just sort of like like casting about for meaning and explanation and they found it in like these ways that now we're just like, oh my God, what were you doing? Sort of like adolescence, but like at a societal stage, it sounds like. Like they were really confused. A lot of the scholarship just directly blames Charles Darwin for, for <laughs> exacerbating it. Wow. Because um, he had his own, uh, you know, he was very religious and his wife was religious for their for their for her entire life. Um, but, you know, he had this like whole sort of uh, prolonged sort of falling out of faith as he sort of established his ideas better and then as those were like sent into the wider world everyone was just like well guess we got to start from scratch making sense of things and so as I said that involved mummies uh <laughs> at this time there were like a lot of uh co colonial um countries uh sort of casting about all over the world looking for things that they thought were cool or pretty that they could take um, and one of those was definitely mummies uh the Victorian uh England uh, sort of upper crust loved Egypt so much um, and so one of the ways that they sort of you know bridge these ideas of like medical cannibalism um, with their newfound uh, treasures was to do like these unwrapping parties of mummies um, pulverizing mummy parts and using them to like put them in your gout wound um, seems very unsanitary. Yeah, I was like, I wonder if any of these things worked. And one recommendation I could find was that um, stuffing, you know, a pulverized uh, mummy up your nose would stop a nosebleed. So, so would anything like, else? Just, yeah. So. Yeah, that was the like one. Dust? Well, I think in this idea, you'd kind of mix it into a paste, and then naturally it would stop your nose from bleeding. You just <laughs> stick it up there. Just put a wow. tampon up there. Yeah, exactly. She's the man. But yeah, so like the, the there's this uh, Victorian um, expert named Richard Sugg, um, and in an interview with the Smithsonian Magazine that I found, he said, the question was not, should you eat human flesh, but what sort of human flesh should you eat? <laughs> wow. That's the only That's question, the money really. quote. Yeah, and uh, and people really particularly loved, like I said, like they would eat, um, you know, sort of like human blood pudding. That was sort of like a panacea. Mm -hmm. But the big thing was just like fat. Human fat was like, put it on your gout, put it on your baby. Like, <laughs> it'll fix everything. <laughs> um, and so you used to be able to buy human fat by the pound from your pharmacy or cut out the middleman and head straight to the executioner. This is like the 1800s, the middle to late <laughs> 1800s I'm talking about, just to remind everyone. So executioners were making money on the side, 
taking the cadavers apart yes. and selling all the bits off to people. I want the Bloomberg Business Magazine investigation about how this whole idea was just to get rid of this cargo. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but anyway, I, I, you know, looking through this, I was just like, this is wild. This is weird. Um, but I also think it's kind of amazing to think about like what today sort of falls under like similar categories. You know, like we feel so uncomfortable by the word cannibalism, um, but it's obviously very near and, and dear to our culture. I found this amazing uh, research paper um, that actually calculated the the exact breakdown of calories in a human man. <laughs> oh, the, even better. So in an average adult human male, there are 125,822 calories um, of, of fat and protein. Um, Sorry, could you repeat that number again? 125,000. <laughs> <laughs> 822 calories. How do you measure? Measure a man. Oh my God, that worked out so beautifully. Wow, that almost made me want to eat someone. (laughs) If we could write a musical that was rent, but about eating organs. Wow. Sweeney Todd. Rent. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. it's been done. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Rent. But more scientific. <clears throat> okay, so in an average adult human male, there are 125,822 calories um, of fat and protein. Um, for comparison, I thought this was really interesting because they're talking sort of about, um, you know, why, um, you know, we don't really eat each other that much. Um, and it was like, maybe it's too few calories. So for comparison, a, a, a mammoth um, would have 3,600,000 calories. So like... <sighs> Whoa. Yeah, we are caloric cheat day. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Um, and so they actually did though a breakdown, and because it's uh, a human, a human uh, man, uh, you know, there are some there are some interesting missing parts I cannot speak to. For example, the caloric value of a placenta. But um, what I thought was really fascinating was like fatty tissue just in general is about fifty thousand of those calories. Hmm. Um, the skeleton, which how do you get into that? <laughs> um, they're saying that, you know, it's from bone marrow. That's yeah. the answer. That's how you get into yeah. that. Um, you break into that and then mm. you suck out that marrow. Um, mm. That's about 25,000 calories of, of man marrow. And then, <laughs> and then you know, each of the, uh, the organs has their own sort of calories. Um, fascinating. 2,500 calories in an adult man's liver. And it breaks it all the way down to, to teeth. So 36 oh calories. God. What? 36 calories in teeth. I That's don't, the most horrifying part of this study so far. This is just proof we're not Victorian. Then the other thing I was like sort of looking in though is like why why are we not cannibals? There are a couple of interesting cases. Like for example, there's this disease called Kuru, which is this um, situation in Papua New Guinea um, where there was some uh, you know like ritual cannibalism, um, and it. It caused uh, like disease, like that was characterized by like muscle spasms and dementia, and not being able to control like whether you were laughing or crying, and then you know eventually, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) true, true, a very severe case of life, Um, and then you died, and uh, and then when they looked in these bodies, it was there was no trace of any kind of infection, but there were holes in the cerebellum. So essentially, like, the body wasn't really understanding that there was an invader there when they were, like, cannibalizing another human being. Um, And so this is, uh, you know, sort of uh, been compared to, um, like, mad cow disease, a a form of transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, um, where you can, you know, get really sick from eating your own species. Hmm. So that's sort of the main... Shouldn't eat brains. Definitely should not eat brains or spinal cords. 
Um, but yeah, that's sort of the main argument today. You just had so many wild facts in there. I don't even really know how to process all of I'm it. I'm still really upset about the concept of eating teeth. Meat. That's what's for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think, I think we're reaching the end of our uh, fact spiral here. So uh, we, we are going to cut this off before we get even weirder about eating human teeth. Eleanor definitely wins, though. Yes, I would say so. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm honored. Things I just learned about eating humans. Thank you so much. On behalf of me and King Charles II. (laughs) You are both (laughs) so welcome. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or SoundCloud. And if you like us, please rate and review us on iTunes. Leave a weird fact in your review, and we might feature it on the show. You can buy our merch, including limited edition SciPride t-shirts and the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week tote bags at popsci.threadless.com. Our theme music was produced by Billy Cadden. Our editor is Jason Letterman. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.